Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Bator of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. So today we are talking about the pilot for Star Trek Enterprise. The name Star Trek Enterprise is not in the official title. It's just called Enterprise. There's no Star Trek on it. That's true. So this is the first time they're kind of breaking away. They're trying something really new. Rihanna, talk a little bit about your first round of Enterprise. I say first (laughs) round because I know that you've only seen it once, just like me. We both saw it together for the first time. Yeah, correct. I watched Enterprise for the first time and only time when I was in high school. So I have a very different lens than this next viewing that I just saw the episode yesterday. Enterprise to me is sort of the less popular brother of the other shows. I heard so many horrible things about that when I actually watched the show, I had such low expectations that I could really only go up and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't really understand why people were hating on it so much, and I think that it has a lot of merit, a lot of value, I really liked a lot of the characters, but mostly it was just fun. It's a fun show, and I don't know if it reaches the depth of some of the other Star Trek shows, but it's still very fun. How about you, Ashlyn? Well, that just sounds jolly and fun, (laughs) Rihanna. Thank you. I went into Enterprise with kind of mixed reviews. I had heard from friends like you had, Rihanna, that it was a terrible show, and I had known several people who had just refused to watch it based Mm. off of the pilot. And I also had friends, and even we have a cousin, who only knew Enterprise Mm -hmm. and was obsessed with it. Even just from meeting fans and talking with them over the years, I know some people are very devoted to Enterprise And that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of their wheelhouse. And as Star Trek fans, that's kind of the fun about being into Star Trek is that I think all of us have one or two series that we're really close to and have seen a thousand times. And then we've watched all the other ones maybe once or twice. And of course, there are some super fans who have seen everything a thousand times. There's just so much content, it's hard to have a wheelhouse in every series. And for me, Enterprise is definitely a weaker series, but I agree with you, Rian. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I was going to. Because really, at the end of the day, despite all the changes, it's still Star Trek, and you still feel the faith of the heart. (laughs) (laughs) And the faith of the soul, really. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Rihanna had a little smile on her face when I was reading the end of my speech, and I wonder if she knew I was leading there. (laughs) I knew you were going somewhere cheesy, and I was correct, so. (laughs) (laughs) So, as we've done with all the other podcasts and all the other series, I'm going to start with a little bit of the history, and then we're just going to launch right into this episode. So, the timeline is that Voyager was totally done by May of 2001. Uh, Rick Berman has been along for the ride since Next Generation. Braga just came to the fold during Voyager. And so they were a solid duo together. They had tons of experience writing together and producing. And they planned the show in the last season of Voyager and they scheduled it to start in September 2001. Now, if you're an American, you will remember that September 2001 was the same year as the 9-11 attacks where Mm -hmm. there was a terrorist attack against the United States, which totally changed 
everything Mm -hmm. in terms of politics and culture. We're younger, and so I remember when 9-11 happened. Rihanna, I don't know if you remember. Barely. Barely, yeah. So we're young enough that going back and rewatching Enterprise to see that it started Mm -hmm. on specifically September 26, 2001, you can imagine that the country was still in a state of shock. There's no way not to view this show without the context of 9-11. And so it's something really important. The first time I saw it, I don't think I really realized how much impact that event had on the show. There's yeah. a couple of big attacks that happened in the show that are clearly a direct reference, which, you know, we're probably going to talk about another series on this podcast. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. So that's kind of the biggest thing with Enterprise. And it's also important to note that since The Next Generation, there's been no gap of more than a year where there's been no Star Trek on TV because it is just a powerhouse of money and stories. And we're still in Star Trek Prime era. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) The uh, So Rick Berman and Brendan Braga were really aiming to create a Star Trek series that was more relatable and character-driven as well as they wanted to feature around a trio again, similar Mm. to the original series. And so they chose the characters of Jonathan Archer, Charles Tripp Tucker III, and T'Pol from Vulcan. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. I didn't realize that, but I can see it now that you said it. The series ended in 2005, and then as you know, a little preview of the next episode, we have a big long gap with no Star Trek coming up. I also want to note that this episode and this whole series did indeed take place after the Next Generation movie First Contact. Mm. And that is something to note just because as we're watching this episode, I was thinking a lot about First Contact. And yes, it is canon and is in this timeline, and they do include this movie in their history. Let's go, Rihanna. Yeah. Give me your worst description of this episode. Genetically enhanced lizard-like people. Look for a Klingon. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) At least this pilot didn't have a jellyfish. Yeah. But there were some gooey people. When? Uh, The people. The Suleiman? Yeah, they're all like squishy. They're like, not oh gooey. No. They're not yeah. at all. They're not changelings. Yeah. They look like it. They can no. like change. They have gooey and they slide between doors. And oh, stuff. that's just, true. Like, they're like Mr. Fantastic. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah like just like. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ashlyn. Okay. Describe yeah. Enterprise Episode 1 Broken Bow as poorly as possible. Warp 4.5 is the best you're going to get. <laughs> Yeah, that was a hot commodity for them. Yeah, they were pumped. Well, should we start there? I would like to start our discussion of Enterprise today talking about the references to technology that we're so aware of that is barely happening or not even existent yet. Oh, yeah, let's talk about it. You mentioned warp 4.5 was the fastest they could go, and it was dazzling everybody. Stuff like that that we take so much for granted in the Star Trek series that this was actually one of my very favorite things about beginning Enterprise when I first watched it was putting my mind back into a time where it was just after Cochrane and further before the original series. And like a sweet spot that we don't know a lot about, which I think was a very smart move for the creators to have something that's like right in the middle there 
yeah, it's a big blank spot. We don't know anything about it, especially by 2001. Absolutely. So I really enjoyed that. And as the show goes on, they have more funny references to like Red Alert. And that's what stood out to me right away is when they are on the Enterprise and trying to figure out how the transporter works. And (laughs) Malcolm Reed is like, oh, I hope they just mean fresh produce. (laughs) Like they don't mean us. Um, So everyone's as paranoid about the transporter as McCoy is, which is hilarious because that's always a funny shtick. But also warp 4.5, it cracks me up even more because we've had series where they suddenly go into like warp 15 on accident and some random space roll anomaly. And so... (laughs) 4.5 literally sounds like impulse to me. It sounds so slow, but it's also really novel for them. And that's sort of cute to watch. I think it's very wholesome. So obviously they're doing this because they're trying to get old fans. They're trying to cater to them. They're trying to bring in new people. But to me, I was actually annoyed Mm. by some of these references because I don't know. I guess it it is a charming way to introduce the show. But like at this point, I'm a seasoned Star Trek fan. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those references are funny. What I'm annoyed at is the times that humans mispronounce Klingons. And then when Archer says all these species names, Mm -hmm. and then T'Pol is like, uh, yeah, those are familiar to me. Yeah. And and honestly, I feel like T'Pol. Same. Because she is the character who represents all the knowledge we already know. I kind of jumped into this hate without also acknowledging that (laughs) even if you don't like it, you are rooting for all of the humans and all of the people who are joining the Enterprise crew. And despite yourself and despite myself, I was excited that they were reaching 4.5 because you kind of see, wow, like this is where it started. Like they are making history. Even though I am a big Star Trek buff, this alone does get me excited because I do like history and I do like knowing the origins of some things. I just feel like sometimes it's too much and it leaves me feeling like Archer is too dumb (laughs) (laughs) to not know and not be embracing some of these things. I agree with the fact that sometimes I got annoyed about how little Archer knows, but then I had to remind myself that it's probably Starfleet's fault because they don't do proper training. The Vulcans have also withheld a lot, which I know is a big conflict in this episode. Archer could have done more research on Klingons. It seems like there's a lot of databases at this point that have information, but he's also not even into his first command yet. This is his first mission, and based on what happened in this first mission, he did extremely well, (laughs) considering he knew very little about cultures He still has the scientific knowledge and the wherewithal to go with the flow. He is very good at adapting to the situation, which is really very Starfleet. He is like textbook Starfleet in this episode to me. I was just impressed by his adaptability, but I agree in the beginning, it was frustrating that he seemed so out of the loop. Yes. And two things I want to touch on from what you said. The first is you just said that they don't give proper training. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a lot about Hoshi. Yeah. Because she was, it seems like, just a friend of Archer's who he asked her to join because he knew that she would love to talk to a Klingon, be the first human to ever talk to a new species. And yes, that is very exciting. And that is absolutely the historic occasion. Mm -hmm. But then when she gets on Enterprise... 
she's nervous because she feels tremors in the floor and she thinks the ship is exploding Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know anything about how the ship works or its normal functions and so I do think that's kind of a failing on Archer or Starfleet's fault that they just bring in this civilian and then are asking her to join this mission without any training. And even astronauts today, you have to go through some very extreme training right. to be allowed on a mission. And so there's a great movie called The Right Stuff that basically talks about all of the history of NASA and its creation and mm-hmm. how humans went from just flying airplanes to leaving the atmosphere in these high-pressured airplanes to space travel mm-hmm. from in Russia and America and China. And so it does get me excited because I love space and I love knowing the history of space travel and I wish that we were still doing more space travel today. It's gotten mm-hmm. a lot better in the past couple of years. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about all of this and I know that they're trying to have a more relatable show. It's 2151 mm-hmm. in Enterprise. So that's obviously a good while from us now. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there aren't enough changes and also too many changes to reality and Star Trek. And so this is just bringing up a lot of questions. I don't really have a problem with Hoshi and how she's brought on the ship. It does intrigue me to think about what are the Vulcans telling them? How much actual building and creating are we doing as humans Mm -hmm. as part of this early Starfleet? Yeah, those are some really interesting points. I had a different view on Hoshi's entrance. The first time I watched this, I remember being very annoyed at her and frustrated that she was sort of this novice to the Enterprise and the systems going on. But the more I watched this episode, I thought that she had really good instincts and that she was following them. Even if sometimes they were wrong, she was still voicing them. And her instincts about the Sulaban were very correct. She knew Absolutely. something was wrong. And yep. so I actually really respected her a lot more this time than I thought I ever would because she's never been a favorite character of mine. Mm-hmm. And I felt bad for judging her so harshly the first time I watched this. I thought it was more like Archer knew that she was the best at what she did and knew that also, like you said, she would love this opportunity. And so that's why he chose her. But I didn't think about it as her just being a civilian coming on. She has a lot of knowledge of the ship systems. In this episode, I see her doing a lot of the background stuff. Also, yeah. I think it's wild that even though they had xenolinguistic departments, they didn't have that much knowledge about Klingons, not Starfleet, but there's whole classes being taught in Klingon and to learn Klingon, but yet yeah. they know so little about the culture. I thought that that was a really interesting disparity between Starfleet's knowledge and what the Vulcans weren't telling them. So to me, this is a sign that they are moving as fast as possible to catch up with the rest of the universe. The humans are trying to fill in their gaps from what the Vulcans are telling them. And we see so much in this episode that the people on board Enterprise have to work extremely efficiently. They have to be super smart and have the ability to work on their feet and come up with solutions off the top of their head way more than in something like Next Generation, where you don't even have to think about where your food's going to come from because you have the replicator. Mm -hmm. But on Enterprise, they're still eating food that is prepared to them by chefs you know or how we would eat food just bring an apple and you eat it Uh rather than ordering one from the replicator i just think that the crew that they choose for these missions have to be extremely qualified not just in their area of expertise but in several other fields one of my favorite moments was when we see jonathan archer 
as the captain, also knowing so much about engineering mm-hmm. and so much about the culture that he's going into, he basically has to have several areas of expertise working at all times going on in his mind. And he's not the only one. So true, Ashlyn. That's a really great point, And I'm glad you brought it up because I was also really impressed by this and surprised. You know, I wonder how many people out there have that much knowledge how long it took for someone like Mayweather to learn how to fly the Enterprise and he's clearly like an incredible pilot or Trip is an outstanding engineer. It takes him barely 10 minutes to learn how to operate and fly this alien vessel. (laughs) Yeah, he gets some of the buttons confused, but honestly, they're so smart and they have to learn so quickly on the fly that even someone like Hoshi, who's a civilian, is quickly adapting and trying to listen to this Klingon dialect by itself without the translator. And to pull for all the help that she does, they honestly don't need a ton of help. I mean, she can identify the plasma decay and she can adapt their ships to search for it. But that's only because it literally wasn't even built into their systems. So she's helping them build it in with her knowledge. But they're very skilled and very adaptable. And you have to be if you're just starting out like this. I mean, we think about NASA astronauts are trained for literally every single scenario. I don't know if it's a little off topic, but it's something I'm thinking about now that we're having this discussion. Because if someone asks me, what position would you have in Starfleet? Mm. If I thought that I'm serving with Jean-Luc Picard in the 24th century, I would want to be probably in command or maybe engineering, Mm -hmm. actually. But then I think of myself as an actual Ashlyn who is very science averse. Like I have not pursued any science in my life. I've enjoyed it in school, Mm -hmm. but not enough to take it to that next level. But I know that if I was entering Starfleet, obviously, yes, you have to have the prerequisites to get in and you still have to be the best of the best. But I just feel like it's a lower requirement than it is for someone like Archer Mm -hmm. or Trip or Mayweather or anyone on board Enterprise. It has to be even more rigorous and it's much harder to get into this early space program Mm -hmm. in the 22nd century rather than the 24th. So true. That's a really important distinction to bring up as well as they probably all have to learn each other's positions to some extent so that they can adapt if someone dies on a mission or God forbid, like something happens where they're incapacitated and someone has to step in. I believe fully that Archer could step in and do engineering work if Trip was like passed out or something. And I'm not sure if Kirk could or Picard even. Yes, that's something I really value in Archer. And I think it is the nature of when this series is taking place is that he could honestly fill in for almost any position. And Mm -hmm. I think he could learn it very quickly with the exception of perhaps Hoshi's position. (laughs) Yeah, for Uh, sure. I think he's as uh, like adept. He doesn't have an ear for language. I am curious because I said my ideal positions. Rihanna, if you were to serve in Starfleet, where do you think you would want to be? And you can say in this show or if it applies to any show. Sure, yeah. Well, I honestly have always loved the idea of being a helmsman because I think I'm pretty good at driving a car. (laughs) You know, I get a little anxious, but I think I'd have to just sort of teach that out of me. in Starfleet. But I've always found that really appealing. And also uh, like seven of nine astro 
physics. I'd love to be in the astrophysics lab, just like looking at star charts. I'd also love to be like a cartographer and map out. If I could have Chekhov's job where I could sort of be a navigator and stellar cartographer, Mm -hmm. I think that would be right up my alley because I'm definitely not science-y enough to be an engineering or or commanding enough to be a captain. There's no way. (laughs) So that's probably my sweet spot. Well, so what we're going to have to do is cryo-freeze you until the 23rd (laughs) century, until Kirk is born. Perfect. And then once Chekhov takes position in season two, you have to punch him in the face and take his job (laughs) instead. Or maybe I can just take, um, like, Lieutenant Chris's job before Chekhov (laughs) arrives or whatever his name is. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, this has me thinking about something else at the beginning of the episode, which is that just like when we train our NASA astronauts, they're not only trained in all these different subjects and they have to be extremely competent. There are also a lot of personality aptitude tests you have to take because you have to be emotionally equipped to be able to do this job and you have to be able to get along with people. And so I'm pretty confused that once we have our crew assembled on Mm -hmm. the bridge, everybody is mean to each other and they're all kind of making fun of Hoshi for not understanding what's going on on the bridge. Trip is full out fighting with T'Pol, mm-hmm. who Archer has said that she has the bridge while he's gone. And I don't really get a great sense of unity. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Me neither. There's no way. And I know it's the beginning of the episode, but I don't like these people in maybe the first half of this episode. And I know that Rick Berman tried to create a character-driven show. Mm-hmm. So how are you feeling about all of these characters yeah. as we're progressing through the episode? Do you feel like the plot is helping them? What do you think? It's a great question and something that I was thinking about a lot. I am immediately turned off by especially Malcolm Reed. I think that he was doing a lot of mansplaining to Hoshi, which I very much disliked. He's just sort of a rude jerk and he's a little bit volatile. And I also wonder how he got past those personality (laughs) tests. I know that he has to be more militant because he's the security officer. So he's always sort of looking around for threats or for things that could go wrong. But we've also seen a million other successful security officers. And I know that's earlier on in the timeline. Starfleet is just starting out. So I understand that they're not gonna be as polished as these later crews are. But I was also feeling a bit like how I felt watching the Deep Space Nine pilot, where everyone was a little bit at odds ends with one another because they're thrown into a situation that maybe they're not quite ready for. And I think that what brought a lot of that tension was to Pole's presence. Trip accuses her of being a spy and of babysitting them. And honestly, they were bickering like an old married couple, so... (laughs) I was surprised that I kind of forgot that in First Contact, in the movie, there's a little bit of like, oh, who are these Vulcans? You know, it's still amazing, but... I wouldn't say there's a little bit. I think there's a lot of it. Yeah. It sounds like for a hundred years, the Vulcans have been guiding humanity towards the path they think is correct. And so there's a lot of bitterness between humans and Vulcans right now, especially in Starfleet. And especially because humans do not take kindly to being handled. Us as humans really need to break out into our own systems out of our own boxes, even though we continually put people into boxes and categories, like T'Pol said. She said that 
you spend so much of your time objectifying other cultures so that you can understand them that you should spend more of your time just trying to understand without objectification, which I thought was such a good point. Topol is not blameless here. She is also being prejudiced towards the humans, assuming that they're prideful and incompetent and... And racist, xenophobic. Yeah, xenophobic, illogical, you know, all the stuff that a lot of humans don't like about Vulcans is the fact that Vulcans think that they are lesser or they at least act like humans are lesser. So I don't see any redeemable Vulcan in this pilot except to pull. <laughs> Do not like the Vulcans. And I only like them because we've had so many good previous interactions with Vulcans. Correct. Like Spock and Tuvok and even Sarek. I really mm-hmm. love the Vulcan race. They're probably my favorite. Same. So watching them in Enterprise, I can see that the writers are purposely trying to make us feel off-footed if you're a Star Trek fan. Even if you've only seen the original series, you know Spock is the best character of Absolutely. all time. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. And the other thing, though, I'm going to say is the scene where the Klingon Klang, <laughs> try saying that five times fast, <laughs> is, he's on Earth with Phlox is trying to take care of him, and Archer comes in. There's these upper-level Starfleet executives talking to these Vulcans, and Also, most of the humans didn't come across great for me either, besides Archer. In that entire scene, I only liked Pole and Archer, and I think the writing did that really well to show flaws in both the Vulcan attitude towards humans and the human attitude towards Vulcans and towards, like, everything. They were being very ethnocentric about humanity, thinking that they know best, but also I was annoyed that the Vulcans were belittling them. So there was this back and forth going on in my brain because then Archer just blasts into the room with all his righteous anger. He's a very morally correct, righteous man. And this shows pretty much from that scene where he comes into the sick bay on earth and is asking is this klingon dead and Phlox is like no he's not dead and archer is then like why were we gonna just pull the plug and so he demonstrates the best of humanity even though it's sometimes misguided misguided yes or not fully informed i mean he doesn't know about stovacore he doesn't know about klingon honor but he's still championing everyone's right to live regardless of who they are or their situation and the Vulcans scorn that but I appreciate it you know and I think that T'Pol actually does appreciate that even though she was technically assigned to guide them back to Kronos I think that honestly within this episode she gains so much respect for him because she sees that sort of righteousness directed in a positive way for their mission with Archer. Well and how cool is it during this scene we see a Klingon, and if you've seen Star Trek before, you know that the Klingons are the enemies, especially <laughs> in this early series. Mm-hmm. How cool is it that we're on the same side as Klang by the time the episode is over? And totally. in fact, we're fighting against the Suliban totally. and not the Klingons. What a twist! Yes. Once I saw the first opening with the Klingon running away, I was like, oh boy, here we go back to hating Klingons. I forgot that we're in this era again. But it was a really lovely change that I wasn't expecting, and another thing I want to applaud the writers for. So we're talking about Archer. Let's mm-hmm. talk more about him. What do you think about Scott Bakula as Archer? So did Quantum Leap come after or before this? Don't know. What do you mean? Will you Quantum look that up? Leap? That's like his most famous show. 
Have you not heard oh, of it? Jeez. No, that's no. like what he's known for. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that's 89. Okay. Wait, so really, I did not know he was in a show before this. Yes, I'm sure that they wanted him because of Quantum Leap. I haven't seen any of Quantum Leap, but sure. I think that Scott Bakula was a good choice only so much as they probably catered his personality to the writing of Archer. I feel like the actor and the character are very married in the writing because they work so well together, but I feel like any other actor who tried to play that with the same writing would come across more cheesy and more unrealistic and sort of showy than Archer did. And Archer's already a little bit cheesy in this episode. There were some moments where I was like, ooh, I'm getting lactose intolerant from all this cheese. I was about to interrupt you and say, someone could be more cheesy. I think so. (laughs) I think Bakula straddled that line to get through the episode. But actually, as much as Archer is seen as the weakest captain, for the circumstances and for the show, I think that he's a great character and that Scott Bakula is doing a great job of having to play a lot of different emotions on the screen. We see like his anger, we see we see his determination, he's very passionate. He will stop at nothing to go and do what's right, which is a really fun thing to watch play out when it's written well. And I think that this episode wrote it very well to show that Archer is dedicated to these people he barely knows. I mean, I think he's been friends with Trip and maybe Hoshi, but he doesn't seem to know the rest of these characters very well, but he will stop at nothing to go and save their lives. Even to pull, he saves her halfway through the episode. That's honestly what I think has to pull trusting him more is because he sacrificed his own health and his life for her safety, even though they've had a lot of animosity. So I really respect Archer and I respect Scott Bakula's betrayal. How about you? I love what you're saying. You've kind of made me open up my mind a little bit about Archer, actually. Mm -hmm. Because now that you're saying this, I do notice that Archer is the only captain that doesn't have a flaming ego Mm. that we've seen so far. I mean... Kirk, Picard, Cisco, Janeway. Maybe Janeway doesn't have as much of an ego, but she definitely still does. It's true. And Archer is pretty humble, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think his biggest claim to fame is that his dad worked with Zephram Cochran. Totally. And Henry Archer. And he passed away before his dreams could ever be realized. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jonathan Archer, his motivation a big part of it is seeing his father's dreams realized. Absolutely. As well as being a part of this historic mission. But he is definitely able to combine this kind of humble beginning and inspire others to greatness. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something rare about Archer, that he's not a typical captain archetype. So in my perspective, when I'm watching a pilot series for Star Trek, we've talked so much in these podcasts about what pilots mean to us mm-hmm. and what kind of thing it gets you excited about watching a pilot. But for me, in a Star Trek-specific pilot, I'm looking for how are all these roles going to be filled? We yeah. need a captain, an engineer, a doctor, a helmsman, blah, 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 science mm-hmm. officer. We know all these roles, and we're waiting for the people to fill them. And do they meet our expectations? And Archer is someone who just throws me off. And it took me until maybe the middle of the episode to really start liking him and really respect him for what he was all about. Absolutely. I agree with that. It did take me a while to warm up to him, way more so than any of the other captains we've met thus far. But 
that's the turning point is when he saves the rest of them on that snowy hoth planet (laughs) Um, after the cantina scene and he's not afraid to just go and jump in to the action be the captain who goes down on away missions like kirk and i think that that was probably way more common before the picard era oh yes Yes. Yeah. It's all hands on deck. You need everybody Absolutely. down to help you. Yeah, especially someone with such expertise. And T'Pol is very annoyed by this, but he knows that he has to do it because I don't think he wants to risk other people's lives in that manner. And he knows how to utilize people well, which I really appreciated when Mayweather was teaching Trip and Archer how to fly the pod. Mayweather, I think, was like, sir, why don't I just fly this? And he said, no, we need you here. He knows how to delegate in a way that is smart to the ship and smart to the mission. Definitely. I was wondering if we could talk about the new audience that Trek is trying to acquire. Yeah. Because there is swearing in this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, like, F word. No. But, like... It's not Discovery yet, but... <laughs> yeah, it's not quite or Picard. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot more swearing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot more nudity. Class two, <laughs> class two swearing. Yep, nudity. So... Not full nudity, but and, and a lot this. And a lot more sexual references than has yes. ever before been in Star Trek. Way more. Way more blatant ones, because there's a lot of innuendos that Star Trek makes sometimes, but never this blatant. Absolutely. Especially, I'm thinking of the scene where they have to rub the gel all over oh each other. Oh my god. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of uh, my friends who tried to watch Enterprise and literally stopped when that scene came on where Trip and T'Pol are decontaminating one another. They're like rubbing up each other's bodies because they were like, what in the world is going on? This is not Star Trek. This is so bizarre. I always wonder why they added that in. Was it just to sort of attach the sex appeal to the show in a different way than having the women wear short dresses or be in green makeup dancing around? <laughs> like, do you have any idea why? My guess is that they're just trying to appeal to modern audiences audiences Mm -hmm. because this is a new millennium and I think this is an example of Star Trek being maybe 10 years ahead of its time Enterprise was canceled after the fourth season Mm -hmm. and so I do truly believe it is a series that's a little ahead of its time that people maybe weren't ready for I think this is the main reason why Enterprise is so different from the rest of the shows in the 60s 80s 90s because of what they're trying to do with these characters and make them more sexual. Yeah. If you watch Discovery or Picard, this is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the overt sexualness. No. That is specific to Enterprise. <laughs> that is just Enterprise. <laughs> but there's a lot of swearing like we talked mm-hmm. about. So I, I think it's just a chance to bring Star Trek into the modern time and have it relate more with the modern viewer just to really shake things up and yeah. say, hey, you thought that Voyager was not your father's Star Trek? Let me tell you it's something. not your grandfather's Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I also think that it's kind of like when you have have a professor who is okay to curse at a class and like you yeah. automatically gain respect. I think that's what they were going for. I don't know if it was quite achieved the way that I feel yeah. like it is in Discovery or Picard. When Tilly starts cursing in Discovery, I'm like, yes! Oh man, this show I just gained so much respect for. But when it happens in Enterprise, I don't know if it's just because I just feel like it doesn't really hit the mark of me being like, oh, this show just got way cooler. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, why? I mean, I don't mind the cursing. I think that Trip is the perfect character to curse about something 
I think because they're trying to inspire us to say, hey, let's bring back the space program. Do you see how cool Archer is? Like, right. let's keep it going. But then it just throws you completely off when mm-hmm. you see that now they're pretty much naked, rubbing gel on each other, and Tripp's <laughs> fingers are going, like, into her pants. Zooming in on the yeah. crevices of their bodies. Yeah, it's yeah. just a lot. I feel like it is a weird tone. The episode is not long yes. enough to it make us forget about this weird part so true and have it smashed together with this ideal optimistic future that star trek always tries to project absolutely so speaking of the tone how did you feel the plot did for demonstrating the beginning of a show i thought about this most of the time while i was watching this episode Mm -hmm. i have a lot of problems with the plot because i found myself going in and out of being interested Mm -hmm. i was interested in the beginning because i know what klingons are and i'm curious about what's going to happen with clang yeah But as we go on and learn more about the Suliban and all the other species we encounter that we don't know yet, I am finding that I have to work to make myself stay focused and pay attention because I just don't think the plot is as interesting as it should be or as interesting as these characters are. And I don't even find the characters that interesting. So to me, I'm kind of invested in this plot enough to watch the next episode, but I'm not so excited like how I felt when I watched the DS9 pilot with the prophets and how exciting that introduction was with the Borg. Mm -hmm. Somehow just seeing aliens we don't know anything about run around fighting each other just doesn't pull me in. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe that's my own failing that I wasn't willing to work enough to stay invested in this episode, but I just, I just wasn't super into it. I think the only thing that was keeping me invested is the curiosity of who the main person was who was manipulating the Suliban, because at some point it's mentioned that the main boss, quote unquote, I'm very curious because they mentioned that it was from someone 15 years in the future, and that was just glossed over in about a second, and it's never brought up again. And I don't remember because it's been too long since I rewatched this. So I am curious about that mystery. So I'm mm-hmm. glad they set it up. But otherwise, I thought it was a mediocre, kind of okay way to introduce these characters. But I would have liked a little more, honestly. Yeah, that's really fair. I found myself thoroughly enjoying this pilot, actually. Mm, interesting. Um, which surprised me, too. I actually was also like, hmm, interesting. Why are you liking this? so much i don't remember liking it that much the first time around because i think the parts that you mentioned also i enjoyed the references to the temporal cold war i do wish they had more of because i had to listen carefully to make sure i got it and that was a little bit frustrating that they didn't keep coming back to it but i think that it was tantalizing enough that i was excited to see that this wasn't just going to be an episodic show that it was going to have an overarching conspiracy plot like the x-files does but a lot of star trek doesn't do that a lot of star trek is episodic deep space nine was really the only one we saw before this and then voyager sort of has it but it's more about getting home it's not building up to a lot of stuff well and i would argue that both ds9 and voyager is a combination of episodic and absolutely uh, series length plots totally totally and so 
um, which we know that Enterprise is gonna do the same thing. It wasn't as successful as Deep Space Nine in grabbing my interest to the point where I was immediately like, I must watch the second one right now. <laughs> but I found it to be a good enough introduction plot-wise that I was kept interested. I think the only time that I was sort of zoning out or looking at my phone was when there was none of our characters on screen and it was just a Sulevan talking to the quote-unquote emperor-esque <laughs> type person in the chamber that's like temporally mm-hmm. messed up or whatever, which I found a little bit disappointing, but that's also very Star Trek and they're trying to set it up in a way that's interesting. It just didn't work. But I will agree with you that I do wish, like with a lot of Star Trek pilots we've talked about already, we, I wish that we had more of a background on the characters that we're meeting because like you said, we didn't even know if Hoshi was a part of Starfleet. That should be pretty clear in the pilot. We shouldn't have to go digging for it. And even if they said it and we missed one line of dialogue, I still think that- There should be other indicators. Yeah. yeah. I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more of a connection with these characters and I think the reason I enjoyed this pilot war is because I've already seen Enterprise mm-hmm. and because Trip is literally one of my favorite characters on Star Trek. So seeing him again was a delight even though he's kind of <laughs> annoying in this episode and volatile. He's still just a fun character even though going into it you know nothing about him. I still enjoyed his presence on the screen but someone like Mayweather I think we get the most background from him and from Archer that Mayweather grew up on a cargo ship and that Archer's father helped develop Warp and that's about it. What do we know about well, Malcolm? Well, well, we know some scenes because Archer sometimes will close his eyes and then he'll remember <laughs> oh, the yeah. time when he was a kid. Okay, so we know that Archer <laughs> built toy models and his father taught him to not care about the wind. <laughs> but like, if I can take a quick tangent and talk about oh, this wind weak. metaphor. Oh, God. Yeah, it was a weak attempt at including metaphor that, may I say, did not land on the last quote of the episode when Mayweather asks, sir, there's an ion storm, should we go around it? In which he responds, no, we must not be afraid of the wind. I'm like, look, the wind is very different from an ion storm. You don't want to just go shooting your new ship into an ion storm. So I thought that was very misplaced and not yeah. a solid enough metaphor to maintain the whole time because the wind first represented to Paul in his flashback and then suddenly it represented their entirety of going into space. It was too back and forth that it held no real meaning for me. <laughs> I think what I'm missing from this pilot that I have not been missing from other shows. It's not a tight plot Yeah, where it's not like there aren't any loose ends. There's so many loose ends mm-hmm. that I can't even keep track of one at a time yeah. because everything just kind of randomly happens and then the plot progresses, but there's no intricate detail that's happening within it that's keeping me interested. See, I would argue that I don't think things just randomly happen. I think that The events are very clearly placed out, but they're not explained enough for me to understand what's going on in each scene. Like I can understand the yeah, I I can understand the gist. Like okay, they're at this planet because they're looking for Clang, but Clang's not there. But this helpful Sulaban is, and then she kisses Archer without consent, which I don't love. No. And there's like this weird sex appeal moment. And then she's suddenly dead. So now she's done. But like she tells you where 
Clang is, but she doesn't. She's just like, go find Clang. So I think that a lot of the scenes start out strong and then they happen to end up pittering out. So the things that I really took away from this episode that I really, really enjoyed that changed my mind as the episode went on is Chapol is an awesome character mm. and I love her. And I end up really liking, and I can really see the trio that they were going for. The Archer, Trip, to Pole trio, I think, really, really works well. Mm-hmm. And I really like the dynamic that they created. And I think it is so cool that Pole goes out on a limb on this episode and takes a chance on this mostly human crew and says, let's do it. You know, mm-hmm. and then she agrees to come with them at the end. And she understands the tricky dynamics between the Vulcans and the humans, and she is willing and excited to maneuver them with the crew. And I just want to have a little shout out and give a blessing to T'Pol because she is awesome. And I love her in this episode, and I just love her as a character. Absolutely. That's such a good point. I really like that you mentioned that because we haven't seen a lot of female Vulcans be main characters in any of Star Trek. Really, the last time we saw a female Vulcan, I feel like, was in Amok Time. <laughs> well, besides the movies, like we saw Savick. True, 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 um, true. But yes, in the, in the series themselves, that's so true. And so I feel like she has to do a lot more work to gain respect. Yeah. You know, I mean, that sort of happens with women in general, but I think she really did well on that i completely agree just for me her alone is enough reason to continue watching enterprise i just absolutely want to throw it out there that despite everything i've said about what i don't like about this episode her and porthos are the reason yes. that i'm watching the show and continuing <laughs> on in the absolutely porthos is so cute he's the cutest thing alive agreed something i also found interesting about this episode is the uniforms and that the women didn't have to wear dresses that was kind of nice it was funny to me because then if you think of it in the timeline that enterprise has these vastly different uniforms than original series does yeah yeah but i think it was kind of nice i like the colors it feels more of a serious tone but kind of one that i can get behind (laughs) definitely and if i think about it today like there are no female astronauts wearing dresses no god no of course of course no one in enterprise and it's silly and funny to think about troy's dress and (laughs) yeah or uhura or any of the yeomans absolutely the things i found a little bit irritating objectification of women especially when they're down on the planet at this star wars type cantina Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that was a little bit frustrating to me but overall i feel like the female characters that are introduced in this get a good amount of screen time and amount of legitimate character development and exploration instead of being a pretty face uh despite some of the remarks of oh this one alien i met had three of them you know (laughs) or like they're talking about sex a lot i guess the water cooler talk never really goes away yeah i also just kind of had a sense that this show is really a victim of being in the early 2000s Mm. because i think that was how a lot of shows at the time were functioning was that you have the water cooler talk at the office and the effects the dialogue a lot of it is just a victim (laughs) of the early 2000s and 
again, if they had made this in 2010, I think this would be an undisputed favorite amongst yes. Star Trek fans. That is such a good point. I really like that, and it helps me sort of reconcile some of the more iffy parts of the show. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about how this ends. I know we touched on it with T'Pol deciding to stay along but archer had a really great conversation with depole at the end of this episode where he talks about leaving behind preconceptions and holding grudges and i think that it showed the amount of growth he does even in one mission i mean i don't know how long this episode spanned probably like two days or something it shows how flexible archer is and how willing he is to learn and to grow which i really appreciated also, this is demonstrated in the scene where he's talking to Phlox, and Phlox has all of these slugs and various creatures that help him yeah. with his medicine, and Archer is at first a little bit disgusted, and Phlox said, if you're going to be exploring worlds, you need to start getting used to this and start to change your attitude, and I think that that also helped him. You know, people were there along the way to sort of usher him into this new mind frame, and I really appreciated that about this episode. I agree, and man, I feel sad we haven't talked about Phlox yet. I think I was a little worried he was gonna be a Neelix-type character, but he's not at all. John Billingsley does a fantastic job. You can tell he is a very flushed-out character because the way he speaks is even a little bit alien. You can Mm. tell that despite that he can speak English, Mm -hmm. his speech patterns aren't quite right. And the way he interacts with the crew is not quite ingrained as it is with some of the other species we encounter. Mm. And I love that about him. And I think that's a really cool way to play Phlox is that he's so nice, but he's not quite what we're comfortable with yet and it totally mirrors how archer is feeling about him and how this crew is feeling about having flocks on board they like him but they're not quite sure what to make of him wow ashlyn thank you for saying that i never thought of that and it really is a test to john billingsley's acting that he was already prepared for this character and the writing also helped him along with that yeah flocks is awesome he's so awesome yeah Yeah. for real I totally agree with you. I think it's so cool that Archer has an open mind, and I love that we do see him learn things throughout this show. And he's teaching us in a different way than Picard might teach us with the strong fist of diplomacy. But we see Archer slowly editing away his preconceptions, and so do we as we go with him. And I think it's a, a nice way to end this pilot because we have kind of an open heart with this crew. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, just like they don't. They're ready to hang out in space for a little while longer. I thought it was funny. Archer didn't really check in with them and say, hey, do you guys need to stop at Earth and get anything? Or are we cool just to (laughs) keep going on our mission for a couple more days, months? Weeks? Years? How much longer is this mission going to (laughs) last? Seriously, he didn't even ask them. He just said, I hope you don't need to go back to Earth for anything. (laughs) I was like, wow, Jonathan, nice work. And he just kind of glanced around the bridge asking, hey, we cool with this? Rather than anyone (laughs) raising their hand saying, oh, I got to feed my cat, you know? (laughs) That's so true. I know. I was wondering that, too. I got to call mom to tell her not to wait up for dinner. Right, exactly. say goodbye to my loved ones like (laughs) yeah yeah so i think despite all the strangeness in this Mm -hmm. episode and all of the newness that we're getting from this series 
I am hopeful, you know. Obviously, I remember that I do end up enjoying Enterprise a lot. Yeah. But just from this pilot alone, I'm a little off kilter by mm-hmm. it. But I am excited to see where it goes. It did hype me up a little bit to learn about early Starfleet. Oh, definitely. And Ashlyn, I have one more closing question for you. Do you think that Gene Roddenberry would have liked and approved of Enterprise? No. (laughs) All right, tell me more. F no. No way. (laughs) I think if you had taken out the nudity and swearing... Yes, he Mm -hmm. would love it immediately. I just think he could not abide by this. But I think he would agree that kind of setting up Starfleet as being not the best example and then setting up the Vulcans as being not the best example, he would have had some major edits. But Mm -hmm. overall, I think he really would have liked Scott Bakula as Archer because he's very Kirk, honestly. I get a lot of kind of like genius Kirk vibe from Archer. Absolutely. I don't know. What do you think, Rihanna? Do you think Gene would have liked this episode or Enterprise as a whole? I don't think he would have liked a lot of things about Enterprise. I do agree that maybe with some editing, he would have liked it. But even then, I don't know if it was the right Gene style, (laughs) which is fine because that's what's great about Star Trek is that it's growing and it started with Gene, but now it gets to expand into something that's even bigger than him. And that's kind of the beauty of it. For Gene, it's not the right stuff. Thank you for potting with me. And I'm so, so excited to talk about Discovery's episode, The Vulcan Hello, next week with you. Oh, I am so excited. And I can't wait to see what Star Trek looks like after this long of a gap. We have a big, huge gap before the start of Discovery. And I'm so excited to watch that pilot. Absolutely. see what kind of amazing and exciting things we can talk about. Hi, my name is Gabriella Hurt, and I am the youngest of the Dura sisters. Thanks for listening to the Dura sisters podcast. Our next episode will be covered in Star Trek's Discovery pilot, The Vulcan Hello. If you like what you heard in this episode, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the Dura sisters podcast. Thank you to all who have became a patron and for donating to our podcast. If you are interested in becoming a patron, please go to patron.com slash Podcast, where donators get exclusive contact. If you like what you heard today, please give us a five-star review. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Wolf's Revenge, was written by Aurelio Voltaire. Why is Star Trek so successful? Because it has good genes.